Welcome to More Business, More Life podcast. I'm your host, Steve Nopoliton. This show is for C-level executives, entrepreneurs, coaches, consultants, and speakers who have found success, but they don't have the life that they want. On this weekly show, we're going to be talking about business skills to have more business while we design our ideal life and have more life, more business, more life without sacrifice. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the More Business, More Life podcast. Our special guest today is Tim O'Hara. And I'm super excited because this is a man that went from going into corporate America, following his education after he got his degree, and then finding himself in the Peace Corps and rethinking things. And now has, you know, for 20 years now, been in Costa Rica building an eco center, permaculture farming, and changing people's lives, having them come onto their space. And we're going to talk about how he came to make this big decision in life and how it's brought him to the place that he is now. And we can learn so much from this episode. So let's go. So welcome, Tim, to the show. I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation because farming and getting closer to the land is as, and I'm not a farmer. I'm, I'm early student. So I know I can learn a lot from you, but I'm very attracted to getting closer to the land. So I just want, you know, to share like, so this, and you've been doing this for years. So back in 2001, you chose to live in Costa Rica, build permaculture, a sustainable eco lodge, and you're bringing people from all over the world to learn about this and even live with you. Like you do periods of a year where they live with you, but I want to get into like how you chose that and all that, but let's first start with where you are today. This is amazing. So maybe just share a little bit of, about your space in Costa Rica and what, what you're doing. Yeah, great. Thanks so much. I appreciate the invitation to be with you and looking forward to share a little bit about our story. I live in a small rural community called Mastatal. It's in uh, the canton of Puriscal. It's about three hours from San Jose, uh, the capital of Costa Rica. It's a small community of about 100 people, very rural. And we have a, an education center, a sustainability education center there that my wife and I started in 2001. Her and I met in the Peace Corps in South America in the 1990s, and I can share a little bit more about that story perhaps later on. But uh, after a couple of stints in the corporate world, her and I decided to start pursuing you know, the activities in life that really got us excited and got us up in the morning and got our wheels rolling. So we brainstormed quite a bit. We were living in Seattle, uh, post-Peace Corps, and and uh, we're really open to the possibility of returning to Latin America, both Spanish speakers. And we just started to put together some ideas as to how we could start leading a more fulfilling and meaningful life. And we're both environmentalists at that time, budding environmentalists. We were gardening and like you, interested in getting increasingly in involved and immersed in our own food and composting and uh, building our own furniture and structures. And after looking for programs, perhaps to engage in ourselves, we found that there was kind of a lack of that type of offering out there. And so we started to think about ways that we could develop the space that we were looking for and uh, started to develop this idea of creating the, the place that we wanted to be learning in. And that was the Rancho Masatal Sustainability Education Center. We offer a whole wide variety of educational programs, uh, mostly related to sustainable living. Most of the topics fall, I guess, under the bigger umbrella of permaculture. So natural building, growing food in the tropics, agroforestry, wilderness medicine, fermentation, food processing, and uh, a whole host of, of other topics. As you suggested, we have people coming through our space all the time. Our home is our workplace. We do have a year-long apprenticeship. So at any time, we have seven year-long apprentices that live with us that engage in the different educational opportunities that we offer that revolve around the different activities that I just outlined. Uh, we receive guests, high school groups, gap year programs, college university programs. We're also a working farm and a community. So as you can probably ascertain, it's a pretty dynamic place with a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I probably never a dull moment. <laughs> Just always something. Yeah. Well, there's so many questions 
going through my mind. I, I guess just curious, logistically, do you uh, have other trainers come in and train or do you and your team do all of the education at the facility? Yeah, we do a lot of the teach, uh, but we do bring in outside teachers in particular when we would like to include a class or a course that we're not well versed in uh, or experts at. And we're looking to build our skills uh, throughout you know, our lives. And oftentimes we'll be looking to incorporate a new skill uh, into our campus, into our core team uh, skill set. And so one of the, you know, one of the exciting parts of our business is that we can really invite uh, anybody to come down and teach about skills that, that we're really enthusiastic about. So it's a mixed bag. We increasingly do more teaching, I would say, just as we become quote unquote experts in a lot of these themes, but we really do enjoy bringing people from all over the world to to help us improve our skill set and uh, expand our knowledge base. Well, thank thank you for 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 sharing that, and I'm sure we'll we'll come back to some of those learnings as we go through this conversation. I'm I I guess what's most curious to me, you know, being I think you were born in New York, right? Yeah, yeah, upstate New York, yeah, southern tier of New York State. Yeah, it's uh, and and then just I think you know you have a lot of folks that hear these stories and you know and just wondering you know part of more business more life for me is choosing your life and so you know after you were in the Peace Corps you came back and it sounds like you have a you had a stint in the corporate world and that was that at that point I guess I'm just looking at the moment of decision that you decided to leave that and, and decide to live in Costa Rica. Can you maybe share a little bit about like, you know, was it always the plan to do a short stint in corporate, in the corporate world, or did you start it out thinking it was going to be the thing and then, and then decide, you know what, I can't do this. Or how, how did that work for you? Yeah, I think it was more the latter. And I don't know if I could, you know, put my finger on a specific point in time when that all happened. I think for me, it was more of a process, more of these aha moments and, meeting people and, and, you know, developing relationships with certain mentors that kind of uh, changed the trajectory of my path, getting to an intersection in life and having to choose between one path or the other. And so I think for me, it was a, a years long process that maybe started after I left upstate New York. I grew up in the suburbs in a pretty conventional upbringing, you know, had a, a great family, went, went to school and where I went to school in upstate New York. I was a little bit more progressive than the community that I had been raised in. So started to be, I guess, exposed to more, oh, I don't know, um, progressive uh, ideas, you know, got introduced to this idea of caring for the environment. And you know, I have a degree in agricultural economics. So I went through that curriculum at school and kind of came out the other end, perhaps with more questions then I went in with and uh, got a job with Chiquita, large agribusiness, as I was kind of uh, training to do uh, through my agricultural economics program, got a job, moved to Philadelphia, lived there for a few years, uh, working as a marketing analyst for a large agribusiness and, and really just almost immediately became a little bit disappointed with that experience. And started questioning what I was doing with my time and energy, read a couple of books, met a couple of people there in the office that asked me some probing questions that made me think uh, that there might be something else out there for me that included uh, the encouragement from one colleague to check out the Peace Corps and see, uh, see about that experience. And so Peace Corps office just happened to be right across the street from my office. And, you know, when and over there and, and put in an application, eventually made my way to Uruguay and got introduced to the idea of permaculture. Bill Mollison's permaculture manual was in the library there and, you know, started to continue to kind of think that there might be another way for me. But after Peace Corps, I had been accepted into an agroecological program at uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, which I was really excited about kind of along the lines of what I was doing in the Peace Corps, working with organic farmers and teaching organic gardening in the schools and soil fertility building strategies with the farmers there. And, and at that same time, I got offered another corporate job from my old boss at Chiquita, and she kind of wooed me back into that world. Social pressures, family pressures, financial pressures all made me forego the opportunity 
in uh, agroecological studies at Santa Cruz. And so I moved to Seattle instead, went back into the corporate world and another two years there before I was able to extract myself. But again, was pretty disheartened with what I was doing there and decided after that to, uh, you know, break ties with that lifestyle altogether and, and then really started to look more deeply into what else was out there for me. Well, thank you, Tim, for sharing. And and I always appreciate when people are willing to open up and be vulnerable and, and share these things because I, you know, and it may be easy for us to do that today, but, you know, many people out there are not, you know, and I, I, I also just want to bring up, I, I don't really believe in coincidence, coincidences so much anymore. Like, it's amazing that the, you know, the Peace Corps office is right across the street. It's like calling to yeah. you, you know, it's, it was right there. And then, you know, it's kind of like your heart knew where it wanted to go. And I, I just want to take a moment. You mentioned, you know, social and uh, I think you said like family pressures and just that dynamics of, you know, the quote unquote, what we're supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. According to others that pulled you back into the corporate world. Can you talk about, uh, and maybe this is a vulnerable question and I, and I, you know, it might be putting you on the spot, but I appreciate this because as you know, we're not the only ones, you know, that have this feeling. So can you maybe elaborate just a little bit on, on those transitions and how you navigated that? Yeah. Yeah. Again, it was, you know, it was, it was a bit of a process. Like I was uh, saying earlier, I, I remember when I got the acceptance letter to the Peace Corps, they sent me a package, you know, what I was going to be doing. I called my parents up, you know, pretty excited. It was you know, pretty difficult to get in. The Peace Corps is a pretty competitive process. And so I was excited. I got my dad, he picked up the phone. I told him, what had happened and he asked me where I was. I told him, you know, I was in my office in Philadelphia and yeah, why? And he said, well, I'm, I'm coming to get you right now because, and I don't want you to go to, to South America. So, you know, at that time I had never been out of the country, lived a pretty, you know, pretty isolated life up until that point. And yeah, there were, there was real family pressure at that point in time, not to, I guess, choose the alternative uh, path. And, you know, I'm the youngest of five kids. My siblings kind of all went through the, the conventional steps to get to where they were at that point in their professional careers. And, you know, being the youngest, I guess I had a little bit more flexibility in, you know, in, in doing something different. But those pressures were real. The social pressures were, were you know, real. To, I had just spent, you know, all this time getting this degree and, and it was meant to be, you know, put to use in a certain way. And, you know, my peers from college and from my professional life expected, you know, me to, to lead my life in a certain way. And, and then, yeah, the financial pressures, as I also mentioned, coming out of the Peace Corps, it's a, it's a volunteer situation where you get a, a pretty small stipend. So returning to the United States post Peace Corps, you know, I had to figure out what that was going to look like for me financially. How was I going to pay the bills and able to, to make ends meet? So all of those pressures, I, I think, are, are real and take a bit of, of overcoming. I think for me, it was influential just to meet people that had already, uh, you know, taken the alternative path. And I think a part of your work and and why you're doing this to you know to share with others that there is another way and there. There are other paths out there that are worthwhile and oftentimes, you know, better. We're all, we're all designed differently. We're all wired differently. I think some people are, are you know, well-prepared and well-suited for certain environments and others for others. But I think our, our academic system, our, a lot of our kind of professional infrastructure guides us down a pretty narrow path. And as soon as you try to, to go off that path, there's a lot you know, pushing you back on and to know that other people have done it and succeeded and found happiness. And not only that, you know, thrived in an environment where perhaps uh, they weren't in the one they, they came from, I think for me, it was, was inspiring and, and uh, a big part of, of my story without having met those other people, having made those, those you know, decisions to, to do something else it's hard to envision or imagine that there's anything else out there, especially when you're, you know, young in college and haven't been exposed to uh, a lot of what else is possible. Thank you for 
for sharing that, Tim. And I think, you know, just highlighting and almost echoing, you know, it's just meeting other people that have done it before, I think is what it sounds like was the leading factor that gave you the, the, the means, I guess, or the, the reasoning for yourself to overcome those, those fears and those other pressures to make, uh, make that decision. What, what it sounds like it was a multitude of pers- people, not like one person, or like you said, it wasn't like one moment. It was kind of an evolution, but if you let your mind go back, is it, was there like a certain moment where it finally like tipped over and then you're like, okay, this is it. I'm doing, was it, was it drastic or did you have like a month's notice or how, how did, when we get to that point where you got to the decision, I'm curious how that moment transpired. Yeah. I guess if I could put a specific event to it, it would be, you know, in the office in Philadelphia, Chiquita and this woman that I was uh, working with that not too long before returned from Guatemala, where she had been living for a few years and working with the Peace Corps. And we got to know uh, one another. And she, you know, learned through that friendship, you know, my, uh, my hangups with the current lifestyle that I was following and, you know, the hangups that I had with, with work in general and, and, uh, getting to know my personality. She, you know, she just suggested that I, I read a book called Bitter Fruit, which is about the overthrow of the Guatemalan, democratically elected Guatemalan government in 1953 or 1954, when they overthrew the leader, uh, Jacobo Arbenz, with the help of the, the CIA and the United Fruit Company, which then became Chiquita, which was the company that I was working with at the time. And, and uh, she gave me a copy of that book. And I read it mostly while I was at work and that really shifted immensely kind of my, my worldview and um, made me connect some dots and really made me question, you know, why I was doing what I was doing, asking questions that I had never asked before, you know, coming out of high school, not really knowing what to do. You know, you get kind of pushed into a career path for reasons that might not be fully developed or in your best interest. And, that is the moment I kind of remember questioning that whole process in a more profound way for the first time. And after reading that book, I just decided I couldn't, it couldn't be working for this particular company, even though that was decades prior, but just the, the corporate structure that I had become a part of just wasn't one that, that felt right for me any longer. And, and yeah, that's, uh, not too long before I walked across the street there and applied and then went into the Peace Corps. So that was, I would say that was kind of the moment that I can most recall as being the most, uh, most important and influential on the, you know, on the, the change in paths for me. Beautiful. And so that was a moment while you were still single, a single guy, and then going to the Peace Corps, that's where you met Robin. So it wasn't, it was a decision on your own. You didn't have a partner at the time. Yeah, it was a decision on my own. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, met my my current wife there. And yeah, that's also a big part of the story, her influence on, on you know, who I've become since then and what I've decided to do. And um, But at that point, yeah, I was, you know, I was able to, I had the, I guess, the privilege of being able to make that decision and, and pick up and go. But, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, even that, you know, once you set up in a in a spot, you have a good job, you have your 401k. And there's a lot of forces that are, you know, working against you making that that change. And yeah, and those, you know, those are, are, are real, like I said, and take some time to, to, uh, you know, make that shift and make that transition when you make what, what are, you know, big decisions in life, but yeah, no regrets by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I can, I can feel it. I can feel you followed your heart and it's led you to an amazing, amazing path. So then just fast forwarding a little bit, you went into the Peace Corps, had that experience, and then you come back in, into the States with Robin at that point then, and, and then you did another stint in, in the corporate world. Is that, is that, am I getting the timeline right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, my wife, Robin, she went into the Peace Corps a year after I did. So there was that year when I, I moved to Seattle, started my my other corporate job uh, while she was still finishing her, her stint in the Peace Corps. So she came and met back up with me in Seattle a year after. But yeah, since then, we've, we've been together. 
Beautiful. And then how long was it? And thanks for letting me get so detailed. I think sometimes these details help other people make decisions because, you know, it's fascinating. You know, people sit, you know, and I know I've been there. How am I going to do this? And just hearing these stories. So I, I just want to give my gratitude once again and uh, and letting me pry a little bit into sharing sharing your life. But so when you when she came back, how long was it before you guys said, oh, you know, we're out of here and, and let's go. Uh, let's go do this. Yeah, it was about five years. We we lived in Seattle together. She was, you know, we we both had. Uh, a number of jobs while there. I went back, as I said, for the corporate gig, but was there for two years and decided to get out. She started teaching school and then she started her own jewelry business. She's an artist and then started working at a, a fancy restaurant downtown Seattle and started bringing home the bacon while I started to look at other, you know, other options. I managed a canoe and kayak manufacturer for a while. I guided camping tours uh, in Mexico and Western Canada and the U.S. And during that time, we were just trying to kind of find our place and figure out what it was that we wanted to, to do moving forward. You know, we had a little garden there at our, at our house that we rented and we composted and we were doing, you know, all the, the, little, the little activities that we were becoming increasingly interested in and it became you know, increasingly obvious that it was something that we wanted to turn more into, uh, you know, uh, a, a living. And we wanted to really start going deeper into a lot of these activities that we we were, you know, super jazzed about. And so, yeah, we started to brainstorm. We decided to move to Oregon to uh, along the Columbia River Gorge. We whitewater kayakers there in the Northwest. We spent a lot of time in that region. It was more rural. Seattle was beautiful. We had a great community of friends, but it was beyond our means to, to buy a home there. We didn't want to move to the suburbs. We wanted to start growing more food. We decided then to move to, uh, to Hood River or outside Hood River in Oregon. And uh, right about that time when we had made that decision, a friend of ours from the Peace Corps called me up on the phone and, and said that he had just been to Costa Rica and he went to this uh, small community where there was a property for sale. And him and I, as Peace Corps friends, had dreamt about the possibility of, you know, doing a project together post-Peace Corps, starting a farm, doing something in the environmental field in South America. But, uh, you know, never it never never happened for uh, for a number of reasons, but we kept in touch and when he called me up, he thought that this was a great spot to do it. We had been talking about back then. He convinced us to get on a plane to come down and check out the property. So my wife and I, Robin and I did at that time. And we were in transition anyway. We had settled on Oregon, but we hadn't moved yet. We didn't have jobs uh, there. And upon the trip to Costa Rica to check out the property, we returned to Seattle and started to brainstorm even deeper about you know what it would that we could do in Costa Rica that would allow us to make financial ends meet, but also meeting the, um, you know, the goals that we had set forth for us as far as the lifestyle changes that we were uh, looking to incorporate. And after a couple of weeks of, you know, running some numbers and writing down some ideas, we decided to, to basically take, take some steps forward and trying to, to purchase the property. And we kind of put Oregon on the back burner and moved Mastatal to the forefront of our, our world. And, and uh, yeah, we were able to get creative and put the financing together and purchase the, the property where we currently have Rancho Mastatal. And uh, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, that's uh, so, so beautiful. And thank again, you know, thanks for sharing that. And so, so then you're able to, you know, go through that process, have all those things. And, and over that period of time, just continue to follow your heart. It sounds like, and, and got you to, uh, and it made sense. And then you also had the awareness to, because of all the things that you experienced. And that's where even I look at, you know, even your corporate life and like running the numbers and all those things, you're able to do that based on the other things that you learned and then be able to make that decision. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, even though some of these experiences in in your life aren't the most memorable or the most enjoyable, um, you know, all experiences are valid and contribute to who it is that you become. 
in the end and influence the path that you take. And even though the corporate years weren't the favorite, you know, my favorite years to think back on, you know, a lot of good came out of that. I, I learned a lot in particular about what I didn't want to be doing or didn't want to be contributing to, but also, you know, just a lot of hard skills that uh, when starting your own business are invaluable. I mean, just to be able to do some basic financial analysis and and a lot of the you know skills I got out of um, out of college and out of that corporate experience or those corporate experiences really did set us up you know well in in a lot of regards and that's that definitely an important part of the story. Yeah, well, and congratulations on on that. And we'll we'll start transitioning into. I want to talk about some farming and some other stuff here, but I think. You know, just another curious point that just came into my mind is, you know, what was it like, you know, being, uh, you know, United States citizen and then, you know, going to Costa Rica, buying that property? I know a lot of people moved to Costa Rica. So, you know, a lot of expat, as they call it, it was was that, uh, you know, uh, an easy process or was that was that uh, troublesome in any way? Just curious. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was uh, an easy process process you know moving to another country requires you know a fair amount of change in your life and a lot of movement and transition and transition can be can be challenging you know wrapping up business uh, in one country and starting a business in, in another requires you know a lot of details and a, a lot of moving around and a lot of setting up and and definitely you know took took us a fair amount of time and energy to do. The decision, you know, after having lived in Latin America for a few years was a little bit easier in that we had already lived abroad. So it wasn't our first crack at at being somewhere else. So we had a little bit, I guess, of the, you know, the cultural sensitivity and being able to navigate in another Latino culture under our belts already, which I think is uh, was really helpful for us. And yeah, like you suggested, there are a lot of expats here in Costa Rica. We you know, moved to uh, a community that didn't have any telephones, that had very poor access. And so our connection with the expat community in Costa Rica, the first decade or so was more or less non-existent just based on where we decided to go, you know, just to do this you know, just to check my internet back then, just to check my emails was a two hour trip into Hako or Capos to community where I could get, you know, an internet connection that has changed a lot uh, over the last decade. But it was a much different uh, landscape back then. And yeah, it required a lot of trips to town and a lot of headaches and a lot of, you know, trips to bureaucratic institutions. But, uh, you know, I think that's just part, you know, part of, uh, yeah, of any move outside of the country or really any move from one place to another. Uh, I wouldn't say, you know, it wasn't insurmountable, obviously. I'm still here and a lot of other people have done it too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I did. I did get to live in Australia for a period of time. And even with that being English speaking, so I didn't have to have, you know, that there, there was still different cultural differences and just the fact of, you know, selling everything and then moving you know, overseas, uh, I can have a little bit of relation to that. And and so I, you know, I understand. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. And then with the, with the transitioning a bit into the land and some of the other things I'm excited to talk to you about and share with our audience, what was this, uh, was this, uh, just bare land? Was it already a, a center education center or farming or how, how did that go about? Yeah, and it was just mostly raw land. Uh, there was an old uh, structure on it, a, a 50 or 60 year old uh, concrete Tico house, just a kind of a standard rural farmhouse there, which was great. It allowed us a roof to live under for those first years as we got our, our feet wet. And as we were able to get a bit established, we had you know, pretty limited resources when we landed there. We actually drove down from Seattle, we drove a couple of our, our vehicles down through, you know, through Mexico and Central America to get there. So it was quite the adventure to get there. But uh, yeah, once we got there, we basically just hit, hit the ground running, prioritized projects. We had done a lot of groundwork prior to going down, making contacts, you know, having meetings with potential groups that wanted to uh, come and have the experience like the one that we were trying to 
to put together. We were able to kind of secure a, a group coming down, a high school group from interior Alaska about six weeks after we got to uh, Costa Rica on November 1st, 2001. So, um, you know, arrived there with the need to, you know, basically figure out how to uh, be able to accommodate a group of 12 students from interior Alaska. And it was, you know, pretty stressful at that time. Getting, Did you say six weeks? <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> a little bit insane. <laughs> and I, you know, I remember the bus, you know, they're their vehicle pulling up and the electricity had just gone out in town the following day the water went out you know these are problems sometimes in rural Costa Rica that are part of life and you know us having to haul water from the river to flush the toilets and it was quite the learning experience but we were also in the situation whereby we had to you know start bringing some revenue in because we had spent most of what we had at that point on a down payment and we were pretty tight in the financial department. So yeah, those were tight times for sure. And yeah, a little touch and go at times, you know, figuring out whether we could meet payroll and, and all of the, you know, the adventures of the early days of starting your own business. It certainly, that was a big, big part of our story, but yeah, little by little, you know, there's a saying here in Costa Rica called poquito a poco, little by little. Um, You know, it's an adage that uh, we turn to all the time, you know, if you zoom out and look at the big picture, it's easy to get overwhelmed about everything that there is uh, that you have to do. And so I think it necessitates this ability to, to really zoom in a lot and, and not, you know, not get overwhelmed by the big picture, but just have your list and your priorities and, and tick off what it is that you have to get done, whether it's making a meal for a group or, you know, finishing a piece of furniture that, um, a future guest is going to be using. Uh, it was really important to start to learn uh, some of those strategies to be able to, you know, figure out how to get from one day to the next without feeling like we had made, you know, a terrible decision. That makes sense, Tim. And it's one thing that I I teach when I work with a lot of executives is, you know, the overwhelm. I think you know, so many of us in, in all walks of life, we can easily overwhelm ourselves with all the tasks at hand uh, to live the life that that we want to live. And, and, you know, really, like I, I always use the metaphor, if you're building a house, uh, you don't put on your calendar, build house, uh, <laughs> tomorrow, build house, w- uh, Wednesday, build house, you know, it's yeah. like, you're going to say, okay, I got to flatten this land, then I've got to frame a foundation, pour a foundation, well, however, you're going to do it, you're going to put the step by step. And, uh, and I think, you know, one other metaphor to add on, I, I use often is, you know, uh, if you take a bite of food and you take too big of a bite and you start to choke and then you start to realize you can't breathe and you're having that feeling and then you get it out and it, and you clear the pipe and you're able to breathe, then you're probably not. There's a high, high chance you're not going to take the same size bite. And and then I look at entrepreneurs and it's like they're taking that big bite every day. <laughs> Almost, almost choking. And, and then they wonder why, and I've done this. So I'm not speaking from like just pointing fingers. I've actually done this to myself and then realize, you know what? It's all about what you say, the little by little, like taking and breaking it down into the the simple steps, then anything's accomplishable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly true. You have to set, you know, small attainable goals on the, on the day to day. You have to zoom out and look at the bigger picture, obviously, and strategize and plan and, and figure out your, your pathway forward. But yeah, on a day to day basis, I think you're absolutely right. You really have to break it down to attainable tasks and, and, you know, take stuff off the to-do list. And that feels great to me whenever I get to do that. And, and yeah, you can't, you can't take off the build house from your list, like you said, for, for many months, whereas you can, you know, you can plumb the, you know, the, the kitchen sink and you can install the light bulb and, you know, you can do the little tasks and, you know, before you know it, your house is done, but uh, you go through it and, uh, in a in a much more controlled um, process that doesn't yeah that doesn't drive you crazy that doesn't overwhelm you so let's pause real quick and take a break and we'll be right back i just want to give a big shout out to pro audio voices they help me with all of my podcasts 
And Becky and her team are just amazing. I've known them for years, even before I started my podcast. And that's why she was my go-to because not only does she help me sound great and produces the podcast so it's easy for me, I can do what I do best. I do the speaking and the interviewing, and then they do all that background work to help get the podcast out there in the right way with the highest quality. But on top of that, what makes it most critical to me, for those of you that know me, wow, clients are important. Wow, relationships are important. And working with Becky and her team is definitely wow. I get an amazing experience. I get to work with amazing people. A lot of love and hugs, let's put it that way. So if you want to work with great people and you want to get a podcast out and you want to let go of all the technology and the way that it's recorded so you can do what you do best, then you definitely want to get a hold of Pro Audio Voices. And it's ProAudioVoices.com and you'll be able to reach Becky and her team and be able to let go of all that stuff so you can do what you do best and then delegate the rest. This all makes sense. And I have so many questions. Some of them, I'm, I'm gonna ha- you and I will have to talk uh, even more. Maybe we'll do another podcast because uh, one of the things as we've been running retreats, uh, but I've been using other retreat centers and I live on a little bit of land now, but not enough to have like overnight stays. And so, you know, this has been a big topic of like where I'm taking myself and my family because I definitely have a vision of, you know, living with the land, living with the food and then being able to, because part of more business, more life is to take people out of the offices, out of those day-to-days to experience something different, which is in a way what the story was for you because you were in that academic situation, then the corporate situation, and then to get pulled out of that, to live abroad, to work with the Peace Corps was kind of a uh, you know, a longer one. We don't, ex- you know, we don't expect people to do it for years at first, but hey, come for a couple week retreat or a, a week retreat and have that experience and make an impact on their, on their life. So I want to transition in into that, how, how that impact and, and in two parts, like one into the lives, uh, but maybe let's talk about farming first, like the, the, what you've created there in, in your space. And I think this is really important. I've, I've, uh, as I've looked and, and listened to different folks, I, I'm becoming a, a believer that one of the biggest ways we can change our, the climate of this planet is through farming. Like the monocrop farming is, uh, from my, uh, what I'm seeing and what I'm learning is one of the biggest culprits to the degeneration of, of our, of our climate on this planet. I, I guess I'm curious if you would agree and then like maybe share some of, you know, these things that permaculture and, and, you know, poly farming, you know, like bringing many crops into one situation. I, I pres- presume that you've been doing that there in Costa Rica. Yeah. Yeah. Food production um, and food security is, is definitely one of the pillars of our, of our educational programming and as well as, you know, what we do uh, in the day to day. So yeah, a lot to, I guess, a lot to, to think about with that question. It's obviously an enormous topic. <laughs> it's a huge, gigantic one. Yeah. So here, let me try to dig it down into something simpler, like, you know, the, the awareness of, you know, I guess, what do you think? It, I think there's a number of things that are important, uh, you know, from my, from just what I've been learning and maybe you can highlight a few more or maybe like, uh, elaborate on a few of them, you know, but like one is obviously like the chemicals that, get laid down on onto the ground under some of these farmings. And then, and then also just the thing that's become real aware to me is just the monocrop, like having thousands of acres with like one plant. And, you know, just when you look at the farms that have this ecosystem, it just comes to life and not just the plants themselves, but the, the habitat, the insects and the, and working with the animals and having all of that uh, come together and for you, I know this has been decades of your life's work, but for some people, just in the last couple of years, they're just becoming aware of this. I guess in all of this, is there like a, you know, one or two highlights of the things that are most important that we should be thinking about when it comes to, to the way that we, we produce food and the way that we treat the land? Yeah. Yeah. I think so for sure. And, and how you grow on food there in the States is, you know, different than how it's being grown here and how you should be growing food there in the States is different perhaps and how you should be growing it here. So, you know, I guess the first thing I'll say is that, you know, we're not self-sufficient uh, with regards to food production as a farm and, 
And that I think is really important for people to think about and wrap their heads around. I think like when people hear that we're a farm, a lot of people assume, oh, you're, you're producing all of your own, all of your own food. Well, that's, that's not the case for us. And I don't think it's the case for most people producing food and, and self-sufficiency as we define it here doesn't speak to just what we're doing on the farm or within our gates. It really speaks to the, the larger connectedness to your community. And we think about self-sufficiency more on a community basis or a regional basis. Like, yes, we're growing a lot of food, but yes, we're also supporting a lot of farmers in our region that, that we become quite close to and depend on uh, over the years. And, and thinking about what we can grow responsibly and well in a perennial polyculture while, you know, buying eggs from the woman across the road who's doing it really well and something that she does as a business to be able to support her family. So I guess I'll just start with that to think, you know, not again, to not get overwhelmed by this idea that you have to grow all of your own food. It, it's really about thinking about how you can meet your caloric needs uh, in the least impactful way possible. And that will include for almost everybody the need to develop these really strong relationships with food growers in their locale, in their region. And that, I think, alleviates a lot of the pressure and makes it, uh, I think, a lot more, you know, more attainable. Farmers markets, of course, in the States are becoming hugely popular in part because people are able to have that, you know, direct connection with people growing their food. And I think just making that connection on that person to person level, but then also, you know, for people, if they're new to this, just getting started somewhere and it doesn't have to be by buying a 12 acre farm and, you know, planting all your own food. It's about just starting with getting your hands in the dirt or planting one, you know, one pot on the sill that allows you to just have an interaction with a plant that then becomes food for you. And I think then you can really start to have this, you know, this big shift in your life whereby you better understand where it is that your, you know, food comes from and able to connect some of those dots and less likely to then interact with the broken systems that industrial agriculture have, uh, you know, brought to the surface. We're now realizing, as you suggested, the, you know, the soil fertility loss and loss of water and the poisoning of our soils and the loss of nutrients in, in the food that's being grown commercially and even organically sometimes. And, and as soon as you can start to make some direct connections, I think you can start to, you know, walk and not run down that pathway to figure out how you can change your diet and lifestyle to to be one that's more responsible with regards to, you know, supporting the people that are doing it well, that are stewarding the land well, and not those that are essentially destroying it. And, uh, you know, the stats are staggering. And 1900 only, you know, or around 40% of the U.S. population was directly involved in food production. It's down to, you know, 2%. And we're growing food on these mass monoculture farms that are, you know, growing food in, in really irresponsible ways and trashing some of the best soils on earth just so that we can grow, you know, a monoculture of just a few species that oftentimes goes towards, you know, feeding animals that weren't evolved to <laughs> ingest that type of food. It's a, it's a big topic, but yeah, I think just connecting both personally with the earth and getting your hands in the dirt as well as better understanding where your food comes from. And yeah, going into the supermarket and asking a lot of hard questions like, wow, like there's 70, 70% of the items on supermarket shelves have some product, uh, some corn in them of some sort and understanding how that is impacting us um, from a health standpoint, an economic standpoint, an environmental standpoint. Um, I think there's a lot of hope in the in the food realm right now, I think a lot of people are interested in, you know, buying locally and, you know, figuring out how to eat food that's better for them and better for the planet. And it's a great place for people to start because we all have to eat. Most of us eat multiple times a day. A uh, great place to start to make some of those small lifestyle changes, which oftentimes are then the gateway, the gateways into, you know, bigger lifestyle changes that, hopefully eventually, you know, lead you down this path of 
transforming your life in ways that I think are really important for individuals as well as communities and, you know, the whole, the whole world, if you want to go that big. I, I can appreciate that, Tim. And you touched on so much there, as you know, and, uh, and even for me, I asked such a broad question, so it, it, it makes sense, but it brushed on some things that, you know, when you think about having all, all the crops you need, or like that idea that you're going to have, you're going to grow everything that you're going to eat, you know, it's, uh, not realistic necessarily. Like, I guess you could do it if you put your mind to it, but, uh, you know, it just the thinking in life in general, we're not all experts at everything. So, you know, having that community of farmers, like you said, someone might do something really well, or, or they might have a property that's better situated for a certain thing. Maybe they have more shade just in a, a really uh, specific thing, you know, and maybe someone has more sun and, or, or it's sand, more sand in their soil or whatever, you know, and there's all these different things that could play into it. So it just, feels right. And I even want to say for me personally, I remember as I started to delegate more of things in my life so I could focus, you know, one of the things I, I did get was help with our food and even at points had a personal chef and I was, I was coaching them. So I was able to, to get this and, and it, it worked into my lifestyle. And, but then as I started to notice more things, I was like, wait a minute, that's the part I want back in my or back in my life. And I want, I'm going to delegate other things so that I could actually spend more time with that. And, you know, my wife's done even a better job than myself. Like I've gone and visited some of the farms, but she's taken our children and we've met some of the farmers that we buy from and really, uh, like you said, got closer to our food. And I started to realize just the simple thing that, you know, growing up, there was all these stories with my friends and even myself. It's like, nothing's better than grandma's cooking, you know? And then when I look back generationally, you know, if you go like, even you're saying, you know, in the early 1900s, you go back three or four generations, the way that we treated food, the love that was put into it. I think we can't you know, describe that. And I've even noticed in supply chains with some of my friends that are doing the right thing and paying the farmers in other countries really well and helping and just basically superseding other supply chains and just bringing that love. I can't uh, tell you how much I can feel the difference inside my body because it's all energy. And so I like that idea that you said just on a simple thing, if you could get some herbs to put on the window seal or just plant a few plants in some pots and start to feel something that you can grow. I just wanted to highlight that. It, I, and just even that my my own journey with with food to have it become a bigger part of my life than ever, really, like even beyond where when I grew up. But uh, we're a third generation in the United States, Italian immigrants. And my my grandparents definitely, you know, no matter what size lot they had, my dad was just telling me that even they had less than an acre on one of the properties that they grew up with, with my, my grandfather. And he was actually selling produce, having enough for the family, like, and my dad couldn't believe it, like what they were producing on a small piece of land, <laughs> you know, so, and that has faded away, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of low hanging fruit in developed countries like the U.S. I mean, I go to my mom's house in, in the suburbs of upstate New York. And I, it's, you know, I, I have these visions of you know, food forests and, and, you know, food everywhere. It's all lawn, of course. And those lawns are, are eating up. Uh, you know, a, a lot of water. In many cases, they're, uh, you know, they're being laden with with herbicides and pesticides, and and all I can see is, you know, potential for not again, not that you're going to grow all your food on a on a small suburban lot, but the fact that um, the way that we're we're doing it now just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, and. And increasingly, thankfully, there's a lot of people out there offering alternatives to people that that make sense, you know, not only economically, but, you know, certainly from a health standpoint, but also aesthetically, you know, people love their lawns. I don't want to you know, focus too much on this, this idea. And lawns are great for, you know, playing baseball and kickball and running around with your kids. But they're there's so much potential just in those suburban areas where lawns are currently being grown to you know, to grow a little bit of food, to start reconnecting with your land. And yeah, a lot, a lot to say. Uh, that's, that's one area where I really focus and I go back and my mom, you know, thankfully we go back and visit her every year. I have a garden there every year. We go back in the fall time and, 
And uh, that's another thing I think people don't don't realize that uh, you don't you know again going back to this idea of not having to grow at all. Well, we go back in the fall when most people are putting their gardens to bed. Those that have them and. That's when I'm starting it back then. And even there, you know, I, I grow seven or eight different species of, of greens and radishes and able to harvest that in the short time that we're there and doing a lot of fermentation. She's let me plant a bunch of apple and pear trees in her yard and just those, those small acts, uh, even though they're not going to be, you know, reducing her grocery bill significantly anytime in the future, just that ability to reconnect with the land in that way and, you know, provide examples perhaps to other people with what they could be doing with this space uh, that they're spending a lot of time in, but usually on their, you know, riding lawnmower uh, as they burn fossil fuels to, to keep the grass down so the neighbors don't get pissed off. And, you know, those changes are happening slowly. And I think they're important ones, those, those permaculturalists working in the urban and, and suburban environment. You know, most people live in urban environments these days, and these changes have to take place in rural America, but certainly also in suburbia and in urban centers. You know, this is, this is work that, that needs to take place everywhere where human beings are. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that, Tim. And, and, and th- this is an area that you teach, and this is a reason people... Uh, can you know, and we'll put your website in the show notes and and share that with people. And you know, we could spend out as you uh, as you know hours and hours. I mean, you spent years learning this, and as you said at the beginning of this interview, you're still learning. And I think that's a life. Life is is learning. And so I appreciate you sharing just some of those introductory thoughts. And for those that haven't given thought to this, hopefully that experience is. It's been good for you. And then you can seek more and even from uh, Tim and and maybe go take one of his classes, maybe go visit him in Costa Rica. And, and I guess I'm I'm curious now and as we kind of start to wind down, but I but I do want to hit on another topic that you brought up is the community. And I think, you know, just from hearing you talk, you know, I think that I appreciate this journey that we've taken today, like through your decision making to do what you're doing and go where you are and and then to talk about the farming. But how um, and thanks for sharing that you went into such a place that you had to travel two hours to check the internet. And now I'm so you know a blessings that we could do this interview while you're on your land and we're here we are like in different parts of the world. But I'm trying to think of the best way to you know make this simple because this again could be so broad. But you know how has it worked with the community and bringing people in? Because I I see what you do. You have people there locally that are probably in your life quite frequently and then you have people coming and going but you've created this space to allow whatever that is for long-term learning where people stay with you for a year or maybe they stay for a couple weeks how how have you created that kind of uh ecosystem to have that community of of human beings to gather in in that way is there is there a highlight or or some learning on that that you can um pick apart a little bit yeah, yeah, I think it's a good question and an extremely important one. You know, moving abroad, you know, my family's mostly in the States and making that step to go away really necessitated the, you know, it necessitated us having to build a community to replace the one that I guess we were leaving at the time. And and so building community is such a big part of this this story and a big part of I think what people need to be thinking about if they're going to be making large lifestyle changes or going somewhere else to live in pursuit of, of happiness. And, you know, without community, I think that's really difficult. Community can look, you know, different based on who you are and what your definition is. But I think especially in these times, people are increasingly aware that, you know, living alone isn't for everybody. It's not healthy for a lot of people. And that, getting back to this idea of building healthy community is a critical piece of it. And in a place as dynamic as ours, as you suggested, we have locals that are friends that work with us, that we employ. We have people that come in from the outside who take our workshops or live with us for a year in an apprenticeship. And there can be a lot of movement in and out of that space. And that can, without really good organization, create an itinerant, transient, sometimes hectic environment, unless you really have clear agreements. And I guess what I'll refer to as invisible structures, um, that's the term that's used in 
permaculture lingo to really have these invisible structures in place to be able to deal with conflict, to be able to make good decisions, to be able to govern yourself, to be able to, you know, to do financial analysis that brings you to good decisions. And I think the take home message is just really clear environments and expectations with the people that are coming into your space, whether that be an employee, whether that be a friend, a family member, an apprentice, an intern, a workshop participant, there is that, that common thread, I think that, that requires really good communication prior to going into, uh, you know, an agreement with somebody. And we've learned this, I think, the hard way in a lot of cases, you know, having these oral agreements with people and, you know, your best buddy and you have a pat on the back and you, you know, agree to, to, to something. And then when you look back on that conversation a few years down the road or a decade down the road, you have a, an entirely different memory than perhaps the, the other person that you were talking with does. And just being able to go back and refer in some way, shape or form, you know, in the form of a document, usually what you talked about and agreed to, I think is really important for our success, you know, really clearly outlining to the year-long apprentices who are applying to our program what it is that they're going to be getting and what it is that um, we're going to be expecting of them and just having really good, you know, this is a little bit of the kind of the, the corporate piece that at first I kind of rejected, you know, as I started to pursue this alternative lifestyle, like the corporate world is evil. I'm trying to get away from it and, and I don't believe that any longer good corporations definitely function well when they're good, well organized and when they're making good decisions and when they have good structures in place there's some pieces of that that I continue to move away from but what I can take from those experiences and entities is this you know idea of having very clear communication and clear agreements with partners so that you can have a, a healthy ecosystem and a healthy community and one that's resilient and one that's able to resolve conflict, which is inevitable when you get people in the same space and uh, just really spending the time and investing the energy and getting that part right. Because, you know, growing food can be hard, building your own house can be hard, but attainable. You can, you can plant a tree and learn how to take care of it and grow food. You can learn carpentry and build your own house, even though it might be challenging. But the people part really is the hardest part of developing a, you know, a successful business like the one that we have. And that requires uh, a lot of time and energy into developing these invisible structures, which allow people to, to live together in a way that, you know, that's healthy. And, you know, People looking to make these changes are looking for happiness oftentimes, and happiness requires a lot of hard work on that front, just making sure that, that everybody is, you know, working within the same framework. That makes sense, you know, and I have a feeling, and, I, and I've done it too, like you said, we learned the hard way. I think it comes from that, that loving, you know, the, the feeling of love and wanting to be loved, you know, love and, and wanting to trust. And I think, you know, I had to differentiate being clear and writing things out and having those expectations and trust are two different things. Like at the beginning, I thought, oh, this means I'm being untrusting because I have to be this clear and I have to write everything out. And so I resisted that because I'm like, oh, I'm being a jerk because now I'm asking for a legal agreement that I never liked reading, but I've found exactly what you found. You know, and I tell people this right away. I'm doing this because I love you, because yeah. of the relationships I've lost, because I wasn't clear. And there's a saying, I forget what psychologists said it. They said, you can take a family and interview all the children and they'll all have different parents, even though they were born biologically from the same parents. But it's that's how much the memories are different. And we all, you know, grow and, and journey differently. And so I've found, and thank you for, sharing your experience with this because I found that being more clear and creating those expectations actually survives the relationship. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, that's it's you're doing everybody a favor. And I had the same, yeah, same feeling. Just what you outlined resonates with me uh, deeply. So yeah, well said. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Tim. And, you know, as uh, 
But man, there's so much. Like I'm, I'm holding myself back because I have so many different things. So I, I'm sure we're going to continue to talk, I hope. And uh, I, I'm so happy that you took the time today to share a little bit of your life and your experience. And and I hope that uh, just anyone listening out there that's thinking about making change, and it doesn't mean that you're going to sell everything and move to uh, a country in a rural area, but just I think we all have these things inside of ourselves and maybe we're we're holding back because we think other people, you know, thinking of other people, think of our, our community, thinking about what we're supposed to do, quote unquote, you know, so whatever that is, whatever change that is, hopefully maybe you were inspired to, you know, take it, you know, seriously. And then little by little, you can have whatever you want. Just like you said, Tim, right now in the closing here's a, uh, you know, you could build a house, you could learn to care for a tree, you could learn so many things. It's just, what is it that you would like? I, I'm curious if you were, for a closing thought, Tim, if there was like one piece of advice, if if you were talking to someone, it was the last time you were going to talk to them, but just on this front of choosing your life, mm. you know, because now here you are living the life that you dreamed, I, I suppose. Is that accurate to say? I, th- I mean, I, Cl- yeah, enough. no regrets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <That's> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so then what would you say for someone that's, you know, looking to make a decision? Well, if, 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 so, if you were to give me one piece of advice and this is the last time we spoke, what, what would you think would be most important to share with me and as a closing thought? Yeah, I think something that came up as you were chatting there, you know, we moved out of the country and, and changed locales entirely and became expats and, Central America. And I think as humans, we have this, you know, grass is greener syndrome where we always feel like it's better over there or somewhere else. And, and, you know, sometimes you do have to get up and go and, and change places to be able to find happiness. But I think what I would suggest to people is just maybe trying it where they are now and maybe making those changes internally and within their current community, even though it might not seem at first glance is the best place to do it. I think it requires the least amount of energy, external energy, I think internal energy. I think if people can kind of reconfigure their thoughts about where it is that they are, oftentimes it's more sustainable to do it that way. It's more financially attainable to do it that way, to think about how you can kind of recreate your life within the space and the place where you find yourself and start to experiment with those changes. And like you said, you know, there's a lot of people that kind of up and go, especially during this pandemic, they have a house, they sell it, and all of a sudden they're in Costa Rica and they land and they buy a really pretty piece of property with a a view out to the ocean. And then you know, reality sets in and like, oh shit, you know, I didn't do any of my homework and I don't have anybody within a few miles that I can call a friend and I don't want to lead anybody down, uh, you know, a false path and thinking that they have to, to get up and leave their country to, to do what we did to, you know, follow their dream. Um, I would say start, start small, start at home, uh, dip your toe into the water there and, uh, and then, you know, go from there. So start small, don't get, uh, you know, don't get sucked into the grass is greener, uh, syndrome, which I think so many of us, uh, fall prey to, including myself and see what resources are there, right. You know, in your own community and, and start right there. That's beautiful, Tim. And I, and I know we're taking this episode a little longer, but I wanted to add one thought to that, that I think is important. And, and I think you hit on a big thing. So one of my teachers, Carl Bukite, he talks about the the uh, levels of change. And the first level of change is environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the easiest one to change. Like you said, you could just like jump up and go, but it's not, it's it, it's not the deeper change. And and so the the layers are environment is is one of the lowest then above that is behaviors if you go to a new environment it doesn't necessarily change your behaviors like you Mm -hmm. said it might be a new spark or excitement but then uh your old behaviors will set back in whereas if you change your behaviors you could actually stay in the same environment and actually have a different life and you don't have to move to, to your point. And then above behaviors is capabilities. When you have more capabilities, your behaviors tend to change and then your environment changes. And then above capabilities 
he would say our beliefs, you know, if our beliefs change our capable, then we can believe like, even for me with music, when I was a kid, I got uh, picked on a few times that I wasn't good at music. So I like threw it to the wayside. And now in my adult life, I'm embracing that again because I changed my belief that, oh, I can learn music. And then I changed my capabilities that changed my behaviors. It changed my environment it, literally. Cause now I make music when people come to my house. <laughs> so, so it's uh, interesting, those layers. So I, I so appreciate you highlighting that. And it just dawned on me, like how important that really is. And I like your idea, what you just said to close this is a, uh, you know, just start where you are. It's a, uh, it's a, that's a beautiful saying. Yeah. Love it. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show, Tim. I, I appreciate you uh, so much. And we'll put uh, notes for people if they want to reach out to you or learn more about uh, all the things that you've done. We'll, we'll make that available. Great. Thanks so much, Steve. It's been a real pleasure and hope we can connect again soon. Yeah, me too. And for everyone out there, you know, let us know what was most valuable about this episode. We love to hear your feedback. If you have ideas of other things you want to learn, please let us know. And as always, remember, choose gratitude and create freedom. Thanks for listening to the More Business, More Life podcast. I hope you got value. And if you did, we have so many more things for you at stevenopleton.com. You'll be able to connect with us on social media. We are active. You can ask us questions. And then on top of that, I want to give you a really big gift. And it truly is. We want to give so much value. We have an offering. It's a program called Clear Path to Customers. It's the same way that we attract wow clients and only working with the right people, the people we want to. And it's transformed my business into millions more in revenue with the right people and my clients. And we're doing it absolutely free. So you can go to stevenopleton.com and grab that. You just got to put in your information. And we'll send it to you promptly. And that again is on stevenopleton.com. I look forward to having you on the next show. Until then, remember, choose gratitude and create freedom. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.